Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is episode 113 and the final one of 2020 before we take a festive break. So with Christmas just two weeks away, I'm joined by Dr. Charlotte Nicholas, Senior Lecturer in the History of Art and Design and Course Leader for the Fashion and Dress History BA to talk about how the Victorians created our modern day Christmas. And just so you know, the things we're talking about in this podcast, there will be links in the podcast description so you can sort of visualize some of the Christmas cards and bits like that that we're talking about. Charlotte, thanks so much for joining us. Let's get to know you a little bit better first. You're originally from the US, so in a nutshell, what's been your journey to get to Brighton? <laughs> uh, thank you for having me on, Richard. Well, I came to Brighton to do my PhD with Professor Lou Taylor about 15 years ago, and I was lucky enough then to uh, find employment here in the School of Humanities. Mm-hmm. What's your sort of early, uh, early education in, in the US and, and where are you from? What's your, what was your upbringing like? Sure. Um, I grew up in Maine, which is in the northeastern part of the United States, so it's the most most northeastern state in the U.S. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in Boston in the history of literature, and then I did a master's degree in New York at the Bard Graduate Center. That was in the history of design and material culture. And when I was, I, I had thought for a while that I wanted to do a PhD. So when I was looking around at my various options, I, um, I knew about Lou Taylor and her work here at the University of Brighton. So I was delighted to be able to come here and, and do my PhD with her. Oh, cool. And uh, I, I mean, in the UK, we've all got our romantic views of places like Harvard. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but what, what was it genuinely like studying there? Oh, well, it was great. I mean, I was, I was very, very lucky. I think I realized in retrospectively perhaps more how how lucky I was it's a wonderful place Mm -hmm. to be and um, I was certainly able to I it's a wonderful place to be and there were wonderful I had wonderful tutors Um, but I also had a lot of independence for example I I was very interested in taking you know as many history and literature courses as I could as many history and literature modules Sorry, I'm going back and forth between kind of U.S. and U.K. Yeah, sure. academic speak. Everything means something slightly different. <laughs> um, that was that was a challenge when I when I got here. Um, so I, for example, I really wanted to study the history of dress and textiles in more depth, and there wasn't a specific module. This was I was an undergraduate more than 20 years ago, and um, now things have have changed. So I was able to do an independent study with my tutor, uh, Caroline Allier, who ended up uh, becoming my senior, uh, my senior thesis or dissertation uh, supervisor in my final year. So that was, um, that was great. And I was able to, you know, take advantage of the wonderful, um, the wonderful libraries at Harvard. And I also, uh, did an internship at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is an encyclopedic museum, which means they have a little bit of everything. So like the Metropolitan Museum or the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And um, I did an internship there my final year of my undergraduate degree, which then turned into uh, an internship, an unpaid internship when I finished my undergraduate degree. But then, thankfully, it turned into a, a paid position after that. And I worked at the MFA in Boston for four years before I went back to school to do my uh, to do my master's degree. Cool. And um, what does your research mainly focus on now? 
My research now mainly focuses on dress and textiles of the 19th and early 20th century. So I did my PhD research on the transition from natural to artificial dyes in the mid 19th century and looked at that sort of broadly speaking in, in a cultural context. So I looked at the discourses of popular science, particularly chemistry and how that was represented particularly to middle-class women readers and consumers. So in the pages of uh, mostly magazines aimed at, aimed at female readers, uh, there was a lot, much more than I had actually expected when I, as, as one usually finds in one's PhD journey, much more than I'd actually expected to find about the history of chemistry. So chemistry was something that women were encouraged to learn about in terms of um, medicine, because women were often the, the kind of primary care providers, as it were, <laughs> for their families and children. Uh, it, cooking was discussed in terms of chemistry, so an understanding of chemistry would make you a better cook, whether you were actually doing the cooking yourself or whether you were supervising someone in the cooking. And I also looked at uh, scientific discourses around color, too, because color theory was developing in really interesting ways in, in the 18th and 19th centuries, and that um, those ideas made it into women's magazines as well. And Again, the idea was that if you knew something about color and color theory, you'd be able to use that knowledge in how you dressed, how you furnished your house, how you planned your garden. Cool. Yeah. Um, right, let's get cracking and, and talk about Christmas because in this yes. sort of bonkers <laughs> year that we've had, it's uh, something nice to talk about, isn't it? Uh, and yes. You've given um, a lecture before um, a few times on, on Victorian history uh, of, yeah. of Christmas, um, haven't you? Um, so where should we start? I mean, um, how would you usually start your lecture? Why did, why did Christmas begin to change in, in the Victorian era? Well, it, it, you know, John Story has a great article about, um, about the development of Christmas, the invention of the English Christmas he, he talks about in, and that was an article that was published in 2008. And he, he says, you know, it's kind of um, certain certain people might bemoan the fact that Christmas is so commercialized now, but actually this is something that goes back a long time to the 19th century, and in fact early in the 19th century. So in the UK, it's really the 1830s and the 1840s when this um, rapid or more rapid industrialization is happening, and along with the increasing industrial production of various things, um, this led to commercialization. So many of the things that we associate with Christmas, things like Christmas cards, Christmas crackers, these were things that could be sold for profit, of course. And before, I mean, it's not that there hadn't been Christmas celebrations before, but a lot of what Christmas, what, what happened at Christmas time was about food and drink. And of course that can also be sold for profit, but there was a, a sort of expansion of things that could be made and sold for Profit. There was also a growing urban middle class who could buy these things. So by the 1880s, in fact, Christmas shopping was taking place four to six weeks before Christmas Day, which sounds very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> there's a long, there's a long tradition of this. It's not something that, um, it's not something that's a recent development, at least in the UK. Mm. So what was it? How was it sort of celebrated before this sort of boom, which we're going to get onto in a minute? 
Yeah, well, there were, yes, food and drink were a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Christmas, the longer history of Christmas is very, you know, there's, there's quite a lot that's been written about that. Um, there, of course, are multiple festivals kind of in December and early January, the solstice on the 21st of December, Epiphany, which is on the 6th of January, and the Roman feast of Saturn, Saturnalia, which is on the 17th of January. So all of those events had there were sort of some elements of certainly festivity, mm-hmm. sometimes too much festivity. And that was what, um, you know, the, the Puritans famously banned Christmas <laughs> for a brief, um, a brief period. And it was actually restored as a holiday in 1660, but it didn't, it took a while to return as a popular festival. Um, 20, the 25th of December, I mean, this is a bit out of my specialty, but there's no historical evidence that Christ was actually born on the 25th of December, but that was, there's a sort of long, long story involving various, I think, popes and bishops that sort of set, settled on that day as the day that, of, of celebration. Mm. Mm. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, it, it seems like a lot of this, so a lot, a lot of this all seems to be happening around the same time when this really yeah. did start to take yeah. off. So, um, I, I guess Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol, yes. uh, we'll get into that in a bit more detail, but what's, happening in the time that he's writing that what what's happening then where is dickens getting some of that inspiration from or is this all from his a lot of it's from his own mind yeah it's not entire i mean dickens did a lot to um to sort of popularize christmas and there's a there's a sort of famous anecdote a critic named theodore watts dunton when uh dickens died in 1870 uh, Watts Dunton overheard a London Barrow girl say, Dickens dead, then will Father Christmas die too? So <laughs> by that time, you know, by 1870, Dickens was completely associated with Christmas and its popular celebration. But he didn't, in the Christmas Carol, not all of the elements of, that we associate with sort of popular celebrations of Christmas existed. It was there were some, some of them, so certainly the emphasis on family, a lot of the food, the goose and the turkey and plum pudding, mince pies, the emphasis on charity, which we, you know, we can talk more about that mm-hmm. if, if you'd like, because that was a really key, key part of the Victorian celebration of Christmas and, of course, you know, remains an important part of celebrations of Christmas today. Um, but he didn't, you know, for example, he didn't mention a Christmas tree, he didn't mention stockings, he didn't mention Christmas cards. There was, I mean, there's some similarities between the, the sort of ghosts, some of the ghosts of Christmas and Father Christmas or Santa Claus, but there isn't, a, there isn't one character that kind of maps directly onto, onto Father Christmas or Santa Claus. But a lot of the, a lot of the elements of, of what we associate with Christmas were in A Christmas Carol. And uh, certainly the popularity of The Christmas Carol, it was published on the 19th of December in 1843. It was so popular, it had been, there'd been 10 editions by 1844. So this is hugely popular. Mm. And it was not just a book, but it was made into plays. He did public readings. So it was a kind of cultural phenomenon um, in, in sort of performance and experience as well. Mm. Let's talk about the charity, the charity bit mm. then as mm-hmm. well, how that, that got, I mean, that, is, that was really quite heavily associated with um, A Christmas Carol. So it's kindness, yeah. I guess, was the main, basically yeah. the main theme of, of, of the book. Um, yeah. And, and it, it just does really represent some of these 
Christmas traditions that we, we still see now. Absolutely. I mean, the, the political context here is, political and social context is that it, the 1840s were a very difficult decade for, in the UK in particular, it was called the, the hungry 40s. Economic difficulties, political unrest, like the Chartist, um, the Chartist movement, real, real hardship among the working class. And Dickens, of course, this is perhaps a, a bit beyond what we're talking about today, but he was part of a group of writers who included other writers like Elizabeth Gaskell, who were writing about these problems, um, the social conditions mm -hmm. of, of their time and writing novels that were trying to, in one sense, um, resolve some of these problems, but also bring attention to their middle-class readers. This is, this, these are very much middle-class writers writing to middle-class readers, but trying to bring attention to the, the challenges and the problems and the difficulties that, um, that the working classes were experiencing. There, were, there was a parliamentary report in 1843, uh, the second parliamentary report of the Children's Employment Commission, and this exposed what were continuing abuses of children working in factories and mills. Dickens was horrified by these revelations. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett wrote a poem called The Cry of the Children. Thomas Carlyle wrote a, a piece, an essay called The Condition of England. Carlyle was a real hero to Dickens. So Bob Cratchit and his family in, in A Christmas Carol, who are the, the kind of central family unit there, they were the emotional center of the story for contemporaries. And um, now one point here to make, remember these are middle-class readers. So <laughs> Cratchit did not become a chartist. He was not, you know, Dickens was, this was all kind of very safe representations of, of working class characters. Scrooge, in many ways, is the sort of a typical kind of middle-class businessman, representative, representative of his class. And his problem isn't really necessarily his stinginess, which is, is the way he's often represented, but rather his kind of obsessive focus on his own individual self-interest, his own business. And this was kind of, Dickens was trying to kind of sound a warning to the, the new urban middle class. And the, a Christmas Carol insists, it insists on the need for charity and for the middle class to share its prosperity. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's important to remember here, it's not, we're not talking about a radical reform. I mean, there were, you know, this is the 1840s. And so <laughs> Marx and Engels are, are writing away as well. There, are, there were much more radical suggestions for how these problems could be solved. And, and Dickens is not, is not going as far as, say Marx and Engels did. But um, so the, the emphasis here is on individual philanthropy as a, as a solution to these problems. Mm. So, I mean, you mentioned just now about how when Dickens died, that re the reaction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so how, how much does he get associated with Christmas throughout those, those years after he's, he's published? Yeah, it was, it was huge. So let's see, that's my mind. Maths isn't that great but what's that about it's more than 20 years yeah. uh, of yeah more than 20 years, years or mm. yeah so he became really totally associated in the popular mind with a christmas carol i don't know whether it was i, I can't say whether it was his most popular work but i'm sure it was among mm. his most um his most and it's probably been continuous i mean i suspect it's probably been in print since 
1843. Mm, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, so mm. yeah, so that published for the first time in 1843. That's the same year as the first Christmas card as well, isn't it? I think. So was that just, a, coinc was that just a coincidence? Well, I, um, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I don't think, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Henry Cole, who was the key, the key mover in the first Christmas card, I wouldn't be surprised if he knew Dickens, but mm. he was, so Henry Cole, Sir Henry Cole, who's uh, well known to my students because he played a key role in organizing the Great Exhibition of 1851 and in eventually founding the South Kensington Museum, which we now know as the Victoria and Albert Museum. He was a design reformer and he's well known as a design reformer, but he was also a postal reformer. He was a, a civil servant who had his, you know, his finger in many pies. And in 1843, he commissioned what we know now as the first Christmas card. It was designed by the artist J.C. Horsley and a, a thousand copies were printed at one shilling each, which is certainly, that's a, that's a middle-class price. Mm -hmm. uh, he, it, it shows a middle-class family sitting down to Christmas dinner and it also shows on either side the poor being given food and clothing. So right from the beginning we see again this kind of link of middle-class prosperity being shared with those less fortunate. Hmm. And was that, when it was commissioned then, was that the idea from the start to, for that to be the focus, to be the focus on charity yeah. and helping others? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The Postal Service had, again, this is another, <laughs> another yeah. long history, but the Postal Service had, I mean, there were many, um, you know, sort of, there's a long history of the Postal Service, but in 1840, the uniform penny, penny post was introduced and that meant you could post things for uh, one-tenth of the previous prices and the uniform penny post meant that postal charges were paid by the um, the sender rather than the receiver so before that many many postal charges had been you had to pay when you received something so that made um, that made postal services much more widely available it took a few decades for Christmas cards to be available to kind of a mass population it wasn't really until the 1880s that Christmas cards were circulated on a mass scale and that was largely due to the half penny or hay penny postage stamp uh, as well as improved printing technologies. And by the 1890s, in fact, the post office was struggling with its, with the increase in mail around Christmas time, which I think is something that we sometimes hear about <laughs> today as well. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, so what sort of other images were sort of being printed on these Christmas cards? Because I, I think there were some, there's some sort of ones we start to look at as quite traditional now and yeah, some yeah. kind of strange ones. Right. Well, from the beginning, most most of the cards were not religious in theme. So the as as I said, the first one was an image of a of a sort of prosperous middle class family. And there were also by the end of the nineteenth century, you see things like pine trees and robins and Father Christmas, um, adorable children, flowers, those sorts of things, which I think many of those look very familiar to us today. But there were also some very odd things that look quite odd to our modern eyes. And um, Beth Ann Bell had a great, uh, a great article a couple of years ago on the on the um, BBC website, which I can I can link for mm -hmm. you, um, because she has she's picked out some of the strangest. So there's a really amazing collection of these at the the library in Birmingham, the City Library, and 
there were, I mean, some that make some sense in, in the, to us, although we wouldn't have them on Christmas cards today. So crossing sweeps and match girls, um, idealized images of poor children that again, were supposed to evoke a kind of charitable response. But then there are, you know, there's a mouse riding a lobster and uh, <laughs> frogs murdering each other. So things which seem very, very strange. But mm. um, <laughs> Stephanie Boydell, who's written about these who's written about these cards, she makes the point that humor is very much a part of the celebration of Christmas. So I think when you, when you think about it in that context, it does begin to make a little more sense and doesn't seem quite, they don't seem mm. quite as strange. <laughs> mm. um, going back a little bit further then before this mm -hmm. point, um, we've, there's things like the poem, The Night Before Christmas, um, of various titles, obviously, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, and the character of Saint Nicholas, which basically set what we know now a little bit as Santa Claus, Father Christmas, however, yeah. you, whatever your preference is. Um, mm -hmm. And we're going to come back to talking about Santa a bit later on. But how much is that influencing the culture in the UK um, at this point in in those eighteen forties? Yeah, well, the Thomas Nast's, uh, sorry, Clement C. Moore's poem, uh, Thomas Nast produced a famous illustration, and we can talk about that later. Clement Seymour's poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, was published in 1822, which is, is actually, you know, right just before this, this time period that we're talking about. And that did do a lot of um, work in kind of establishing what we know now as, as Father Christmas or, or Santa Claus. But again, I mean, along with the, these sort of celebrations around the time of the the winter solstice there were lots of different figures who kind of come together to make um to make well i i say santa claus but father christmas <laughs> as american i say santa claus but father christmas there are lots of different i mean there's saint nicholas of course his feast day is the 6th of december um saint nicholas in in dutch and then there's a there's a sort of figure in Britain who was known as Old Christmas, and he's represented sort of in text and image even before the, even before the Clement Seymour poem. So that's a more sort of traditional figure. I'm going to come back to how this was all spreading um, to more people um, in a bit. Uh, before <laughs> we get to that point, let's talk about, because it's kind of half-linked, I guess, is because it became a very famous um, picture. But let's talk about Christmas trees. Uh, mm -hmm. the origin of, of those and, and how they arrived here how much I mean it's attributed a lot to, to Prince Albert how much is uh yeah how much was he the, the the sort of instigator of bringing that to the UK yeah he he definitely played he was and he was he was a good friend of Henry Cole so maybe they were <laughs> uh, <right. laughs> in, in cahoots again I mean evergreens have been used to decorate during the winter for centuries that's a tradition that goes back a long long way um as a way of you know, during in, in the Northern Hemisphere when things are very dark and cold, it's a way of bringing nature in and, and I think reminding, reminding us that spring will come again. Yeah. Um, there do seem, I mean, there's trees seem to have been used to celebrate Christmas in Alsace, in, in um, Western Germany, Eastern France, that mm. part of the world, since the, the 17th century. And it, the, the tradition spread through Germany and actually, German immigrants in the UK were, you know, celebrating Christmas with Christmas trees before Prince Albert. Uh, the German Queen Charlotte, who was the wife of George III, who who was a who's king during the 18th century, 
he, uh, she celebrated Christmas with a Christmas tree and that her use of the Christmas tree sort of introduced them to the elite. There were German families in the 1830s who were celebrating Christmas with Christmas trees. But when Queen Victoria married Prince Albert in 1840, they had a Christmas tree. And there was a particularly important image that was published in the Illustrated London News, which was a popular newspaper. It was illustrated with um, black and white images, line, line drawings. They published an image in 1848 of Victoria, Albert, and their children around a Christmas tree at Windsor Castle. And that's, a, I, can, I can send you the link for, mm. there's an article that Judith Flanders has written for the British Library uh, that uses a lot of the images from the British Library's collection and includes that, that image. The, the image was accompanied by this very detailed description. The, the Christmas tree was eight feet tall. There was an angel at the top. It was decorated with candles and gifts. So all of this is sounding very familiar mm -hmm. to, to our Christmas trees today. And they, I mean, all accounts indicate that Victoria and Albert really enjoyed this tradition and it was part of their, their domestic, um, you know, their tra domestic traditions. Mm -hmm. And of course they were genuinely, you know, like, it was a happy marriage as we, as we do know, you know, unusual for, <laughs> for a royal marriage at, at that time. But, um, you know, she, they were devoted to each other. And, uh, and, and the representation of the royal family as a family was um, really important, uh, particularly for, I think, the, the middle classes in, mm. that, in that time. Yeah, a quite sort of aspirational image. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess it, how long before trees then took off, I guess, among the middle classes um, in the UK? So did that sort of start to become a bit more widespread? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a well-established tradition by the 1870s and right. more images from the from the British Library collection. There are sheet music covers, for example, that show Christmas trees by, mm. by the 1870s. Yeah. Okay. So these, all these things are coming in, you know, really quick succession. Um, mm -hmm. uh, as we're, as we're saying, like, this is just the 1840s that we're really talking about here where commercial Christmas is really starting to, to kick off. So how mm -hmm. is that being spread um, amongst the, the population? How much is the, I guess the press maybe starting to grow at this point so that more people can be seeing what's, what's going on elsewhere? Yeah, that's a that's a really big part of of this story as well because the um, the popular press is expanding exponentially during the 19th century. There were a succession of a succession of things that happened. So paper became cheaper. Um, again, postage became cheaper. So so periodicals and newspapers could be circulated more easily. The transport system is growing. There's, you know, first a system of canals, but of course the railway um, by the middle of the century. So the attendance at the Great Exhibition was so large because really of the railway system. So things and people could move around the UK much more easily than they had in the past. And also by the end of the century, of course, it's possible to print photographs and text on the same page. But even before it, even before that was possible, things like the Illustrated London News, which had line drawings. So you could have, there could be a kind of image as well as a text. And that, that is a really important way in which these ideas and images were, were disseminated. Mm. 
let's um, finally talk about Santa, Father Christmas. <laughs> then, yes. Uh, he's Father Christmas to me. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, fine. That's uh, fine. Yes. <laughs> um, and of course, we all know that he's real. Uh, but when we do yes yeah yeah um, um, but but in terms of the perception of how he's how he's sort of viewed and how he's visualized mm-hmm. so it seems that it's a bit like it's just bit, these sort of poems and novels it's kind of like the eighth and it's sort of like the 19th century version of something going viral isn't it um yeah. uh, the night before christmas with the with saint nicholas it's a rain it's it's drawn on a range of different characters and traditions and traditional stories from yeah. loads of different places, sort of plucked yeah. that bit from here, this bit from somewhere else and this bit from somewhere else, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, mm-hmm. was, was that kind of the idea then to try and create like this whole new sort of character that is even more, so you take the best bits perhaps? Well, it's, it's interesting because I mean, to some extent, the, the, who, what we visualize as, as Father Christmas or, or Santa Claus, it takes a little bit longer than some of the other things that we're talking about. Because so in Clement Seymour's poem in 1822, uh, Visit from St. Nicholas, that he has his sleigh and his reindeer there. Mm. If you, if you know the poem, I, this is going to make me sound very old, but I had to memorize it in school. Oh, <laughs> we all really? had to memorize it. I know. I, mm. I don't, I don't remember the entire thing anymore. <laughs> um, but by, and by 1870, for example, he was customarily wearing a bishop's red robe, so sort of long robes, red robes. But also you see, you see him dressed in purple or green or blue or white. Um, and he, he, sometimes he's a human, sometimes he's an elf. So there's some, some sort of contribution from kind of Scandinavian traditions there, I think. Um, but by the late 18- by the 1880s, by the late 1880s, which is, I think, when a lot of these things, we, we see their origin in the 1830s and 40s, and then they come, they become kind of cemented or crystallized by the end of the 19th century. Um, he's melded with this, this figure of old Christmas. So this sort of, this British figure or English figure, this thin old man who was the, the spirit of Christmas, um, to become Father Christmas. And by that point, by the 1880s, he's very much a part of this home-based domestic holiday. And of course, associated with giving, with mm. charity. And he's, you know, by the 1880s, he's a fixture in, in department stores that of course have Christmas decorations for sale. So mm. <laughs> it's all, you know, it's all becoming part of this, you know, more, more commercial um, aspect of Christmas. The, Illustration, so Thomas Nast uh, produced an illustration in the 1880s for Clement Seymour's poem. And that is the kind of, that's perhaps the iconic image. You know, he's got a very big belly and he's got his pipe and his huge smile and his big cheeks. So that's kind of where the, where the development, um, to some extent, that the figure kind of crystallizes. Um, I'm sorry to say that Coca-Cola also plays a huge role. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Herbert uh, Haddon H. Sunblom, who was an illustrator for Coca-Cola, he was inspired by Nast's drawing. And mm. he, I mean, Coca-Cola cannot claim to invent, have invented Santa Claus, but they did, they certainly solidified his image as the, with the red and the white. Um, so drawing on that, that image of Nast's and, and 
color, you know, making, putting it in color. Yeah. This, of course, was to, um, to encourage people to drink Coca-Cola all year, not just at Christmas time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, so Nast's illustration, surely, though, is um, that really, I mean, that still provided the inspiration for Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola has yeah, yeah. the um, commercial ability to, to, to sort of claim that and to refine it. Yeah. But how yeah. we visualize Father Christmas, Santa Claus now, mm-hmm. really is based a lot on that one drawing by one yep. man, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And again, it's extraordinary, he really, isn't it? For a, for a yeah. global, for just a, for, for a global figure, it's just that it's, uh, yeah. it's extraordinary that one, that one illustration set, set everything up. Yeah, and he didn't, um, I mean, he, you know, he didn't pluck that from, from the ether, no. but, uh, but certainly it did, it did do a lot of work in, in solidifying how we how we think of Father Christmas? Yeah, and I mean, as I say, we, you know, we all know he's real. But when did families start telling their children that? Oh, I, that I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be interesting did, to know, it wouldn't it? Become, yeah. Yes. No, I I I don't know. But yeah. certainly, certainly by the end of the nineteenth century, he was associated with you know with charity, with mm. giving, with that that sort of you know, broader emphasis at this time on. Mm on the, the charitable dimension of Christmas. Yeah, and imagine that character kind of being in, inside those department stores. Um, yeah. Probably does sort of start to leave, make, make the, the larger association with, with kids. Um, mm-hmm. How will you be spending Christmas, Charlotte? <laughs> well, we are, we're having a very quiet Christmas here. We usually, my, my husband is from the Basque country in Northern Spain, and we mm-hmm. usually go and, and spend Christmas there with his with his family and friends, but that unfortunately is not is not possible this year. But we'll be doing a lot of uh, a lot of zooming with with yeah. uh, with my family in the U.S. and his family in the Basque Country. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and Father Christmas will certainly make an appearance. There's also um, there's a Basque sort of version of Father Christmas uh, mm-hmm. named Olent Zero. He's a giant who comes down from the mountains to give um, to give the children their presents, and his his partner is Mary Domingue. So they they are in in kind of regular years they they set up in the town square, and my kids go and uh, tell Olancero and Mary Domingue what they want for Christmas, and yeah. cool. <laughs> and then he gives all the children sweets. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I hope you can get back to that next year. Mm, um, hopefully. Uh, look, we, we end every podcast with the same questions to all of our guests. So I'm just mm-hmm. going to rattle through those very quickly. Uh, so first one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, I would tell my younger self not to worry so much about everything. <laughs> <laughs> is that a natural thing for you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's still something I'm working on, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I sympathize with that one. Uh, if you could study um, any other course at Brighton, what might that be? I would study textiles design, particularly print design. I'm not sure I'd be very good at it, but I, I love printed textiles mm-hmm. and, and I'd love to learn more about how they're designed and made. Nice. Um, can you pick a favorite place in Sussex? This is hard. This is hard. And we did, we were not able to travel this summer, needless to say. So we spent a lot of time exploring Sussex, which was really fun. I think if I had to pick a favorite place, uh, it would be Charleston Farmhouse and the, and the surrounding gardens. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice choice. Um, tell us something about yourself that a lot of people may not know. Well, I think for this, I'm going to go with something Christmassy. Um, when I was in high school, I was in a city production of The Nutcracker, and I was the shortest mouse on the left. 
So I have a couple of high school friends who still call me the shortest mouse on the left. But, uh, but yeah, it was really, it was really fun. I'd always loved, I'd always loved the Nutcracker and it was, it was fun to actually be part of it that year. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, and then finally, if you could invite three people to dinner, so fictional dinner party, excluding mm -hmm. family here. So anyone past or present, who would they be and why? Uh, this was really, it was hard to, hard to make three decisions, but I think if I had to choose, I would invite George Eliot and the 19th century author, Zora Neale Hurston, the 20th century author, and uh, Michelle Obama. Um, these are all very clever and inspiring women with good senses of humor, so I think we'd have a good conversation. I think Eliot would make sure that we were talking about intelligent things. Hurston would tell us wonderful stories and Obama, well, Michelle Obama is, is wonderful. <laughs> she yeah. would keep us all, she would keep us all grounded and, and tell us fun anecdotes about um, life in Washington and the White House. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, maybe we'll see her again there one day. Uh, Charlotte, thanks so, <laughs> thanks so much for your time today. Enjoyed that. Um, have a great Christmas. Yes. You too. Thank you very much. Uh, and the same to everyone listening too. Thank you for your support of the podcast this year. We're going to take a break now until the new year, back on Friday, the 8th of January, when we'll be speaking to Dr. Kathy Martin about a very new year sort of topic. So healthy eating and veganuary. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. <laughs>